The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. There is no invasion, there is an election. This is Thursday, November 1st, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Even with the monumental and devastating events of this past week, the top story remains the election this coming Tuesday, November 6th. This year's spike in early voting has not faded, and the records have already been broken. In numerous states, turnouts already exceeded the total turnout in that state's last midterm election. In Georgia, where voter suppression's been rampant at the hands of the Republican candidate in a close governor's race, turnouts already tripled from the early voting of 2014. In one Georgia county on Saturday, the waiting line was three to four hours long. People have been lined up around the block in Texas. Turnout has more than tripled in Houston's Harris County. There, the independents who normally vote Republican are polling for Democrat Beto O'Rourke over incumbent Ted Cruz in a surprisingly close race. The tough governor's race in Florida has motivated about 3 million early voters, a record high number. There, Democrat Andrew Gillum has the lead, which is why Trump was in Florida last night, slamming Gillum and inspiring his mob of red hats to chant, lock him up. Early voters usually represent just one-fifth of the number of people who will vote by the end of Election Day. Turnout, as it turns out, runs higher in states where voting is easier and lower in states that limit voting times or places and require specific photo IDs. Registered Republicans have cast more votes so far in seven key states, including Florida. But we don't yet know how they voted. The numbers of Democrats and independents voting early are up, too. And the number of young people, voters under 30, who say they have or definitely will vote is up by 14 percent over 2014. Democrats are favored to win the House. Republicans favored to keep the Senate. But a dozen House races remain extremely close and anything's possible. We could see a Democratic blowout or a district-by-district fight that lasts for weeks beyond Election Day. More than two dozen races are considered toss-ups, and most of them are in lean Republican districts. The New York Times polling indicates that Democrats have the numbers this year, but that Republicans still control the map. Democrats still have to overcome the gerrymandering that still exists despite some corrections, and they still have to overcome the voter suppression in all of its forms. Voter suppression has made national news from North Dakota, Georgia, and Kansas. In North Dakota, Native Americans are suing that state to try to get the state's voter ID law suspended before Tuesday. North Dakota's new law requires voters to have street addresses, a rarity on the reservation. Native American groups, led by the Spirit Lake tribe, say the purpose of that law is to keep them from voting. In Kansas and Georgia, the white Republican men who control the voting in their states are both running in tough races for governor. Georgia Secretary of State and gubernatorial candidate Brian Kemp's contribution to suppression was outlined here thoroughly last week. In Kansas, gubernatorial candidate Chris Kobach is also a Secretary of State, and he was able to share a laugh with Dodge City's County Elections Commissioner who emailed him about an ACLU plan for a voter helpline and added... LOL. A lot of the people in majority Hispanic Dodge City, Kansas, 
might like to have such a helpline, especially now that their town's voting place has moved more than a mile out of town, well beyond where the buses run. And then the county election commissioner sent out notices to new voters, giving them the wrong address for the new polling place. Voting in Dodge was already hard enough since it has one-tenth the number of polling places per capita than the state's county-by-county average. The ACLU is now suing, and that case comes up in court today. A president's party usually does poorly in the midterms. These elections midway between the start and the end of a president's term. Never was this more true, perhaps, than this year in the middle of Donald Trump's term in office, assuming he serves out the four years. It could be a long election night. It could be days long. Survey says... Health care is the number one thing on the minds of voters. Democrats and a few worried Republicans have been running on that. In a desperate, lowest common denominator bid to spare his party, Trump has made immigration the issue, even calling this the caravan election. Still, he tweeted last week, Republicans will totally protect people with pre-existing conditions. Democrats will not. Vote Republican. This after Trump announced last October that the Affordable Care Act, which covered pre-existing conditions, is, quote, Dead, it's gone, he said. This year's open enrollment for AC coverage began today, with two dozen more choices than last year. After more than five dozen votes to kill Obamacare with no replacement plan, Trump and other Republicans are now touting the things they've done and the things they'll do on health care, including saving the parts of Obamacare that people like, and there are several. Now that they understand what a big deal this pre-existing conditions thing is, Republicans are playing defense. Their TV ads featuring their spouses and kids that cheer for the covering of the health care they tried to kill again and again and again. While Trump, desperately playing to his base, says this election is about a one-in-a-thousand caravan that he says is an invasion of the U.S. that requires a military response and that we should all be afraid of this caravan when there are things much closer to fear. Violence by white nationalists is every bit the threat to the U.S. as is ISIS. The FBI has a thousand open investigations into domestic terror groups, nearly an exact match to the number of open investigations into radical Islamic groups. And although those numbers match, there have been twice as many attacks from white nationalists and other domestic terrorists as there have been from foreign terrorists, and they have been just as deadly. There is also a difference in the focus on these groups by Congress and Homeland Security, which got its start after the foreign-based 9-11 attack. Congress has held many hearings on foreign-based terror, but none, zero, on domestic terror. This is not the case at the FBI, where Director Chris Wray says we take them both very, very seriously. The FBI works to prevent acts of terror, regardless of the ideology behind them. Unfortunately, the FBI does not investigate mass shootings as terrorism cases, unless they are the work of foreigners. Mass shootings by Americans are not currently classified as acts of terror, even though a case over the weekend proved to be precisely that. But the FBI director says there are ways around this, charging domestic terrorists over gun violations, explosives, and others, including hate crimes, all of which carry sentences comparable to those that might come from an official charge of terrorism. And Director Ray says state and local police can also file charges, including murder. But the bottom line here is that the FBI is counting, 
and finds that domestic terror is now as much of a threat to the U.S. as is the foreign terror we have focused on for the past 17 years. One of the many groups being watched by the FBI calls itself the Proud Boys. Over the past two weeks, 10 members of that group have been arrested after a violent brawl with anti-fascist protesters on the streets of Manhattan. Among those arrested, John Kinsman, described by the NYPD as the group's single most vicious member. All 10 men now face charges, including rioting and assault. The NYPD says it, too, is keeping an eye on these groups, the so-called Proud Boys in particular. Proud Boys leader Gavin McGinnis was in Manhattan because he had been invited to speak there by the Metropolitan Republican Club. On the opposite coast, the FBI's arrested the leader of a violent neo-Nazi gang, 28-year-old Robert Rundo of Huntington Beach, California, is now in the jail in downtown L.A. facing a federal criminal conspiracy charge. Rundo beat feet for Central America two weeks ago to try to escape arrest, but was then captured and brought back here. Rundo is the founder of the so-called Rise Above movement, which brought violence to protests up and down California last year, and even that one time in Charlottesville, Virginia. Rise Above members were one side of Trump's good people on both sides claim. They allegedly traveled across the continent to join the so-called Unite the Right rally and to bust some heads. Two other members of that group, one as young as 22, are charged with inciting riots, and the FBI is still looking for a third member to be charged, 38-year-old Aaron Eason. Earlier this month, four other members of that group were arrested on conspiracy to riot charges. But it was in his hometown of Huntington Beach that Rise Above leader Robert Rundo allegedly punched not only protesters but also a journalist three times in the face, all while shouting, we will not be replaced by Jews. One member of the group texted another at the end of the day, front page of the stormer, we did it, fam. He was proud that the violence brought by Rise Above had made the front page of a neo-Nazi website. Fascism is on the rise around the world, and that includes the United States. The Anti-Defamation League says the number of anti-Semitic incidents here rose by 57% last year over the year before. Although these incidents now occur in all 50 states, well over half happen in just six, the ones where the most Jews live, New York, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Florida, and Pennsylvania. And the numbers are up. About half these incidents are vandalism, often with swastikas, often in cemeteries. About half are harassment. But there are also anti-Semitic assaults, about two every month. Anti-Semitic bomb threats number in the hundreds each year. Most frightening, the number of anti-Semitic incidents at K-12 schools has grown by 100% each year, two years running. The Justice Department has now unveiled a hate crimes website to increase communication between law enforcement and the public. It's a place to report hate crimes financed by a private grant from the National Institute for Justice. But since Trump took office, the U.S. has had no envoy at the State Department to deal with anti-Semitism. We normally do. Trump's first Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, didn't see a need for one. In fact, said he thought having an envoy for it might make anti-Semitism worse somehow. When Mike Pompeo was asked at his confirmation hearing to replace Tillerson if he would finally fill that position that had been vacant for a year. Pompeo gave his word to the author of the law that created that position, New Jersey Republican Congressman Chris Smith. A Republican, I emphasize.
Another five months has passed, and there is still no special envoy for anti-Semitism as there once was before Trump. The State Department's telling Congressman Smith they meant to hire somebody two weeks ago, but that person got sick and pulled out, so they found a new person, but they're not sure yet when they can start. You know how it is. Stuff happens. Like a horrifying week of domestic terror, for instance. After an individual Muslim commits an act of terror, we ask what made him so radical, what pushed him to that point. We don't ask the same of domestic terrorists who get their news from alt-right websites, including Breitbart, Infowars, The Daily Caller, and more, including, of course, Fox News, especially on its business news network. Fox has made it a point to vilify Democratic donor George Soros, who's Jewish, Lou Dobbs bellowed about the, quote, Soros-occupied State Department, and Maria Bartiromo proposed that Soros was behind the Kavanaugh protests. Last year, there were more than 16 million tweets tagged as hate speech, more than the number of tweets about Game of Thrones or the Super Bowl. On Instagram, there were nearly 12,000 posts with anti-Semitic messages, including the abbreviation for Heil Hitler and the hashtag JewsDid911. More about social media's role as we progress. It was a week in which the country watched in horror three acts of domestic terror, not on white Christian Republicans, but instead on black people, Jews, on prominent Democrats, and on Trump's other big target for scorn, CNN. While the nation was still focused on a male bomber, a white Kentucky man with a history of using the N-word and making racial threats, as well as a history of mental illness told his dad tonight might be the black death. And then 51-year-old Gregory Bush drove to the First Baptist Church of Jeffersontown and tried to enter, according to witness accounts to police. The church doors were locked. A witness says Bush pulled on the doors to no avail. He banged on the doors, and no one answered. Ten minutes later, he was at a Kroger's grocery store. No longer on his meds for schizophrenic paranoia, despite a court order to take them, Gregory Bush did have a gun, which the court had ordered him to avoid. And he killed two black people in their late 60s, including a man who was helping his 12-year-old grandson buy poster board and a woman who tried to flee through the parking lot. It was, as he had predicted to his father, a night of black death. He is now being charged with hate crimes in addition to the murder charges, but the nation for the third straight day, was focused on the mail bomber, who was still at large. Pipe bombs, the FBI says were not hoax devices, were still being intercepted en route to well over a dozen targets, each of whom had been publicly named as enemies by Donald Trump. The FBI put a quick and impressive stop to it, with help from postal inspectors and local police. By Friday, a suspect was in custody, but on Monday, yet another bomb, identical to the others, including its packaging, was intercepted at an Atlanta post office, this one addressed to CNN headquarters in Atlanta. The first two bombs sent to CNN New York were collateral threats in packages intended for former CIA Director John Brennan and former National Intelligence Director James Clapper. Bombs were sent also to Obama, Biden, and Clinton. Senators Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, and Congresswoman Maxine Waters were the targets of mailed pipe bombs, as was former Attorney General Eric Holder. Biden and Waters each got two, actually, and the bomb meant for Eric Holder got returned to its false return address, 
the Florida office of Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Democratic financiers George Soros and Tom Steyer had bombs in the mail as well, and there was the bomb sent to Oscar-winning actor Robert De Niro. It would appear no coincidence that these targets for terror are featured in hateful stickers that cover the van that was apparently home to the man now charged with sending those bombs. And it would appear no coincidence that the targets of Caesar Sayoc are the same as the prime targets of Trump, who won praise from Sayoc, also on the side of his van. Even after more than a dozen bombs, Sayoc allegedly had a list of other targets more than a hundred names long, more politicians mostly, but also entertainers and journalists. Anyone Trump or Sayoc believed to be an enemy of Trump or an enemy of the people. The FBI began visiting people on that list of a hundred to warn them to watch the mail just in case there were more bombs on the way. At age 56, Caesar Sayoc was an amateur bodybuilder and, he claimed, a former male stripper. More recently, he claimed he was the DJ at a Chippendales. Chippendales denies that. Before moving into his van, the 56-year-old Sayoc lived with his mom and delivered pizza and owned a dry cleaners and managed a strip club and played pro soccer and arena football. But Caesar Sayox made a lot of claims about himself and his past that have been disputed, including that he was a member of the Seminole tribe and lived on a reservation, and that he had worked at the Seminole-owned Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Hollywood, Florida. Hard Rock says it has no evidence of this, and Sayox is the son of a Filipino man and his Italian wife. Lately, apparently, Sayox has been living in that white van plastered with pro-Trump stickers and stickers proclaiming hatred for many of the people who got or were expecting bombs in the mail. For a while, the van Sayoc used for pizza deliveries was covered with stickers that included Ku Klux Klan, a black man in a noose, anti-gay symbols, and pictures of explosions. The Pizza House, not one of the big chains, a small one, says it kept Sayoc on because good drivers are hard to find. Sayoc hadn't spoken with his family for three years, and his mom says he had no interest in politics back then, not three years ago not before the 2016 presidential campaign starring Donald Trump. In his free time, Sayoc, a registered Republican, went to Trump rallies wearing his red hat and carrying signs and making certain he got pictures and mailing bombs, apparently, since Sayoc's DNA and a fingerprint were found on or in three of the packages. Authorities had the DNA sample in their database already since Sayoc had been arrested on felony charges before, including for making a bomb threat. Some who know him describe him as either mentally ill or at least delusional. Facebook removed his account as soon as Sayoc was named as the suspect in the mail bombings. Sayoc's posts also included references to, quote, my Russian brothers and links to the Kremlin's take on the civil war in Syria. But Sayoc's Facebook post mostly reflected racism and homophobia and hatred for the enemies of Trump, just like the van that carried him to Trump rallies. He was no supporter of mine, Trump would tell reporters. But even Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who threatened severe punishment for Sayoc, called the bomb mailings an act of political violence and said it, quote, appears to be partisan, meaning one party over the other, meaning Trump's party. The Trump faithful refused to believe what they were hearing, and we'll circle back to that. Even as the packages continued to be intercepted, Trump was at work blaming those other than his name-calling self for this atmosphere of incivility. 
two hours after CNN's New York facility was evacuated and with more bombs on the way, Trump tweeted, A very big part of the anger we see today in our society is caused by the purposely false and inaccurate reporting of the mainstream media that I refer to as fake news. He added, Mainstream media must clean up its act fast. That last line sounded a little like a threat against a constitutionally protected media outlet. Trump was blaming bombs sent to the media on the media. Trump had already laid the groundwork of his blame through his attacks on the media, including calling it the enemy of the people. Stop blaming others, tweeted bomb target and former CIA director John Brennan. Look in the mirror, Brennan wrote to Trump. Your inflammatory rhetoric, insults, lies, and encouragement of physical violence are disgraceful. The American people deserve much better. By the way, added Brennan, your critics will not be intimidated into silence. But this president isn't here to do what presidents do, to try to pull the nation together, to try to inspire strength and resolve. Bush did it after 9-11. Clinton did it after the horrific Oklahoma City bombing. Trump chose instead to swat a hornet's nest. It is, after all, why Trump supporters voted for him in the first place and still stand by him at every turn. His crowds were chanting, CNN sucks, even as the bombs continued to make their ways through the mail. No, unifying Americans is for chumps in Trump's world. By continuing the battle, Trump is saying, let the battle continue. Without realizing it, Trump confessed to his role in the nation's uncivil dialogue. At a rally in Wisconsin, he criticized those who, quote, carelessly compare political opponents to villains. Stop, he continued, treating opponents as morally defective. The perpetrator of Crooked Hillary and Lion Ted was cautioning against making villains of your rivals. As the nation's leader, Trump called for civility, but immediately reverted to his usual base-riling rhetoric. In the latter half of the week, Trump didn't like what he saw, the unfolding of the Caesar Sayoc story and Sayoc's life as an enthusiastic Trump supporter. So Trump stepped up the rhetoric Friday night at yet another rally, quote, We have seen an effort by the media in recent hours to use the sinister acts of one individual to score political points against me and the Republican Party. He continued, The media's constant unfair coverage, deep hostility, and negative attacks only serve to drive people apart and to undermine healthy debate. CNN sucks, chanted the people in the red hats loudly. Fake news, they chorused. Those in red hats were also the first to chant lock her up on the same day we learned of a bomb sent to Hillary Clinton. Trump also attacked Democrats as radical socialists. Asked if he should tone it down, the president told reporters, well, I think I've been toned down. If you want to know the truth, I could really tone it up because, as you know, the media has been extremely unfair to me. Another time-tested diversion, make yourself the victim, forgetting the people who were sent bombs or the people who were shot to death and those who fear they might be next. On Friday morning, with another bomb still on its way to CNN Atlanta, the commander in tweet wrote, Funny how lowly rated CNN and others can criticize me at will. Presidents before him understood what a free press means and didn't find it funny at all. And that made for Trump's 260th tweet against CNN, 260 since the day he announced his candidacy and came down that escalator. Trump 
bothered by being called unpresidential, tweeted his latest CNN attack. It certainly appeared to have bothered him. He tweeted it at 3.14 a.m. And then came the gun massacre in Pittsburgh and a host of conspiracy theories. Those stories, plus the bungled plot to smear Robert Mueller and Bob Seska after this. Hey, thanks again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. No matter what you buy there, your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. And if you shop the new Amazon business, which is also free, you can manage your office supplies with the greatest of ease. I got a little commission from Amazon for that and every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Now, if you'd rather not use my Amazon link, please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thanks again. While law enforcement and the media pursued the facts, Trump resumed his agenda, as did the alt-right, which has its own approach, to say that events from Sandy Hook to the mail bombings are false flags. The alt-right believes the Democratic deep state government runs false flag operations to divert the public's attention with a manufactured crisis, sometimes staged by actors. Or in this case, to blame a perceived false flag operation on the far left, the anti-fascists, Antifa. Within hours of the discovery of the first bombs sent to the Clintons and the Obamas, right-wing media host John Cardillo was saying, these smell like false flag tactics of unhinged leftists who know they are losing. A similar accusation by another right-wing radio host got 2,000 retweets. By afternoon, Rush Limbaugh was on board saying, Republicans just don't do this kind of thing, meaning the bombs. You know, he added, it might just serve a purpose here. Fox News Channel did its part with the help of its expert on-air contributors. Quoting one, two weeks before a major election, who's going to look like the bad guy here? The Republicans. Fascinating, the Fox News host said. Trump chimed in, liking a tweet that read in all caps, fake bombs made to scare and pick up blue sympathy vote. And yet it was Trump who in 2012 tweeted, be careful of an Obama bomb to win election would be a horrible thing to do. And then on Saturday morning on the Jewish Sabbath, a man with an AR-15 and three handguns opened fire inside a Pittsburgh synagogue shouting, All Jews must die. A baby's bris was underway and at least 11 people were killed. Four police officers were wounded along with two bystanders. The assailant encountered the officers as he was headed out the door. After a shootout and a standoff in which he too was wounded, the suspect surrendered. This was the third mass shooting in a house of worship in the past three years. It was the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in American history. Like Trump, the alleged killer believed the U.S. was being invaded and that he had to act. The alleged shooter who'd called Jews the children of Satan tweeted, screw your optics, I'm going in. This alleged mass killer is identified by law enforcement officials as Robert Bowers, and he now faces at least 44 counts at the local level and more at the state and federal levels, including for hate crimes. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said the federal charges could lead to the death penalty. Unlike the alleged bomb mailer, Bowers had absolutely no criminal history, but he did own 21 guns and had posted anti-Semitic views. 
Unlike Caesar Sayoc, Bowers hated Trump, but only because he thought Trump was too soft on what he called an infestation of Jews to whom he referred with a slur, the K-word. Like Sayoc, however, Bowers stands accused of an act of domestic terror, third one in a week. This one against Jews, along with the targeted killing of black grocery shoppers in Kentucky and the string of bombs mailed to Trump enemies. It comes at a time of a rise in hate groups and hateful speech. Trump told reporters if the temple had, quote, some kind of protection, it could have been a much different situation. Trump was saying there should have been armed guards at a baby naming ceremony. It's a terrible, terrible thing what's going on with hate in our country, and something, he said, has to be done. Indeed. It has again sparked conversation about guns as well as about hatred and Trump's role in that. Last night, Trump told supporters that mass shooters are just wackos and that he'd like to see the death penalty in vogue again. He called for unity and then went back to calling Democrats names, including two of the pipe bomb targets and Senator Elizabeth Warren again. But again, Trump's hands were not clean. He recently expressed pride in being nationalist over a globalist, globalist often anti-Semitic code for Jew. Trump has attacked Democratic funder George Soros, who's Jewish. There was a bomb addressed to Soros, too. Trump's words can kill, according to former State Department official now running for Congress who called Trump's rhetoric like sparks to the gasoline of disturbed minds. White House advisor Jared Kushner, who's Jewish, says his father-in-law is no anti-Semite. He had to come out and say that. But Kushner knows some of Trump's advisors are. And whether Trump is or isn't anti-Semitic is important, but not as important as the fact that anti-Semites think he is. Trump had, after all, talked about the very fine people in last year's deadly alt-right gathering in Charlottesville that included neo-Nazis who chanted, we will not be replaced by Jews. Senate Trumper John Cornyn tried to deflect for the boss, commenting, you could say Democrats are on the defensive after encouraging the mob scene at the Kavanaugh hearings. The fake news tweeted Trump is doing everything in its power to blame Republicans, conservatives, and me for the division and hatred that has been going on for so long in our country. No one, however, remembers things being quite like this. And many do blame Trump's hateful rhetoric for giving license to those who would turn hateful words into hateful actions. At a Pittsburgh vigil on Sunday, a rabbi who survived the synagogue attack had a message for politicians that seemed aimed at Trump. It has to start with our leaders. Stop the words of hate. If it comes from you, Americans will listen. End quote. Later that day, Trump was mean-tweeting about wacky Democratic funder Tom Steyer and Democrats and the media. And after the worst attack on Jews in American history, Trump showed his compassion by tweeting about the World Series and going to a campaign rally. Trump also said he would go to Pittsburgh. He's not welcome here, said one Jewish leader. And over 50,000 people in Pittsburgh immediately signed an open letter to Trump asking him not to come. Not now. The letter was penned by the leaders of a Jewish group in Pittsburgh, including one of the shooting survivors, but it was signed by tens of thousands of Jews and Gentiles. At least, said the authors and signers, not while we're burying the dead and not until he condemned white nationalism, which he has consistently refused to do. The letter went on. 
For the past three years, your words and policies have emboldened a growing white nationalist movement. The author said Saturday's violence was, quote, the direct result of your influence. There's more. Our community is not the only group you've targeted. You have also deliberately undermined the safety of people of color, Muslims, LGBT people, and people with disabilities. The massacre, says the letter, is not your first act of terror that you incited against a minority group in our country. After the letter was reported in the press, Trump called the media the true enemy of the people and said he was going to Pittsburgh on Tuesday in the midst of the funerals, whether Pittsburgh likes it or not. Pittsburgh did not like it. The mayor said it would be best if a presidential visit not interfere with the funerals, which also began on Tuesday. Pittsburgh police could not handle the safety and security of both a president and multiple funerals, especially with people under threat. Still, Trump headed for Pittsburgh, despite the mayor and the city's congressional representatives turning down his request to meet with them, as did one of the victim's families, as did the governor of Pennsylvania. Members of Trump's own party didn't want to be seen with him, but over a thousand protesters wanted to be seen by him. Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan both declined invitations to join the president on this trip. Small wonder, Trump was greeted at the airport by no one. Police kept a thousand protesters well back from where Trump would stop to pay tribute. While there, after the day's four funerals had ended, Trump and Melania laid stones for the fallen, Trump speaking only a few words to a reporter about the sadness of the occasion, and he left behind bitterness. Trump left Pittsburgh that same evening. The funerals continue through Saturday. Right after announcing he would go to Pittsburgh, he tweeted, Congratulations to the newly elected far-right president of Brazil, a nationalist with a history of denigrating women, gays, and minorities. Congratulations, sir. And then speaking about the 3,500 refugees walking this way, Trump tweeted about the very bad people, criminals, and Middle Easterners he said were about to invade the United States. He was lying again. Trump was talking about the huddled mass facing certain death in Honduras to fire up his apparently outnumbered base of voters. The migrants comprise a crowd that's already dwindled from 7,000 to 3,500 because it's a long, hot walk from Honduras with scarce food and water. They are still nearly 1,000 miles away and several weeks away from our southern border. It could be fewer than 2,000 people by the time they reach the border. What happens between now and their arrival is an election that puts Republican control of the House in grave peril. And that is why Trump has called this humanitarian crisis an invasion and a national emergency and sent thousands of armed American soldiers to meet those immigrants at the border. Like the synagogue killer, Trump believes the U.S. is being invaded and that he has to act. And now he's talking about 15,000 troops. Under his orders, the Pentagon this week is sending 5,200 troops to assist the 1,600 National Guard troops and the U.S. Border Patrol and ICE guards already in place. Nearly 7,000 uniforms are headed there now, most of them armed to greet a couple thousand unarmed, hungry, frightened people who are not due to arrive for another three weeks. What will happen before then is an election. The Pentagon's also sending some planes, helicopters, and 150 miles of razor wire at taxpayer expense 
transportation, lodging, at an estimated cost of $35 million every six weeks. Pentagon insiders tell the Washington Post that sending troops to the border will hurt the country's military readiness in case something more real and more significant happens. Over 5,000 troops who are combat-ready are going to the border to mostly just stand around instead of continuing their training to remain combat-ready. Military equipment, including aircraft, are being removed from other assignments to stop an invasion that isn't an invasion. And under a law passed after the Civil War called Posse Comitatus, the U.S. military cannot be used to enforce U.S. law, and that includes immigration law. Trump can send troops to the border, but the law says they can't do anything once they get there except to provide humanitarian relief. So Operation Faithful Patriot, as it's being called, is just optics. It's all for show, to fire up his base the week before a desperately important election. Once the refugees arrive at the border, Trump hopes to also greet them by denying their applications for asylum and mass, and even denying them humanitarian aid, if possible. Trump wants to entirely shut down the southern border. The White House has been working up an executive order to that effect based on Trump's Muslim ban. Having declared this a national emergency, Trump has the authority to sign and enforce that order. He would do so knowing the order would immediately be challenged in court, followed by an injunction against enforcing it. Still, the Trump administration's immigrant detention camps are already full, and the law says children could only be held for 20 days. But only 10% of Central Americans who apply for asylum in the U.S. are granted it, so there were never going to be as many as Trump expects in the first place. Trump's even considering suspending habeas corpus for the migrants, which would allow him to detain the refugees without a hearing indefinitely. Such an order would only hold up if a court agrees with Trump that this band of immigrants is an invasion. The caravan is only special because Trump has made it so. One Homeland Security official tells the Washington Post, we get a caravan every day. More than 50,000 people were taken into custody along the Mexican border just last month. 2,000 more are headed this way is only a fraction of that usual number. This caravan is special because there's an election five days from now. I am bringing out the military for this national emergency, Trump tweeted, adding, they will be stopped. The last time the military was deposed to the Mexico border was to stop drug trade in 1997. It resulted in the accidental killing of an American high school student and the government paying his family nearly $2 million in compensation. And that brings us back to social media, which has been rich with viral photos promoting misinformation and outright lies about the refugees. The viral photo of a bloodied Mexican police officer is not the result of a skirmish at the Mexico-Guatemala border, as social media trolls have claimed. It's a photo from a student protest elsewhere in Mexico from six years ago. And carrying this information, the photos were shared tens of thousands of times on Facebook and Twitter. Among the sharers, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and groups called Trump Train and Make America Great Again. There were claims the migrants were traveling by bus and train. They aren't. They have no money. They're walking. Right-wing radio guy Michael Savage said the caravan was 14,000 strong, about four times its actual size. 
and that its arrival would mean, quote, the end of America as we know it. There's a video to promote that conspiracy theory that liberals in the U.S. like George Soros are paying the refugees to come here. The video shows cash being handed out in Honduras. The video was actually shot in Guatemala. And millions of people saw that post largely in part because Trump tweeted it. Trump is woven throughout this stuff, telling his red hat crowd in Kentucky that Democrats, quote, want to open America's borders and turn our country into a friendly sanctuary for murderous thugs from other countries who will kill us all. The alt-right conspiracy group QAnon posted a TV station's news video warning of diseases that could be brought across the border by the migrants. That video also isn't about this caravan. It's from a TV report from four years ago. The refugees are not bringing disease, but social media posts say they are, and too many people are liking and sharing those posts. The photos showing the refugees burning American flags are from two years ago, and yet they went viral this week. And this stuff is not going to stop anytime soon. Social media has been overwhelmed by the volume of stuff it's had to screen in this hyperactive campaign season. Facebook and YouTube say they're doing what they can to keep the hate speak offline. YouTube's removed nearly 8 million videos it found to promote hatred. But while Facebook successfully squashes 96% of the posts containing nudity and nearly 100% of all terrorist content, Facebook only manages to remove hate speech and disinformation 38% of the time. 96% for nudity, 100% for terrorism, 38% for hate. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter say they're each investing in technology, improving those hate speech removal numbers. YouTube employs 10,000 humans just to screen videos. Twitter says its philosophy has shifted from free speech above all to safety above all. It isn't easy, and it hasn't been terribly successful so far, as you've just heard. And this was proven also after the news of the mail bomber and news of a mass killing of Jews in Pennsylvania claims that the bombs were a hoax and that a Jew was to blame. And the Facebook-owned Instagram has gone untouched, which is why an anti-Semitic video went viral on Instagram the day after the worst attack on Jews in American history. And this has revived the talk of government regulation of social media. Trump did not stop at sending troops to the border and closing the border and denying asylum and threatening to suspend habeas corpus. Tuesday, he promised to sign an executive order that would appear to violate the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Trump's order would deny citizenship to children born in the U.S. to parents who are not already citizens. Born in the USA would apply to some people born in the USA. This, too, would likely not withstand a court test. This, too... As frightening as it is to see the Constitution flaunted and in such a hateful way is likely just more bluster and likely to be one of several threatened Trump policies that never come to pass. This has happened before. Still, Trump is trying to rewrite the Constitution on his own, making an exception to equal protection under the law in a land where all men are created equal. Trump spread the misinformation that the U.S. is the only country that offers birthright citizenship. The truth, for those still interested in that sort of thing, is that there are 33 countries with exactly the same policy, including Canada and Mexico. 
Trump's bluster serves as a distraction from the voters' real number one issue, health care, which Democrats have stuck with regardless of Trump's various antics. As usual, Trump is playing to his shrinking base, sowing the seeds of hatred for immigrants who are hopefully not the next targets of violence. But a 2015 survey showed that 60% of us opposed denying citizenship to children born in the U.S. Fox News and other social media, meanwhile, were, just as they had with the mail bomber, spreading wild conspiracy theories. One Fox News contributor said the refugees are bringing with them diseases. The conservative rag New American ran a story over the weekend called, Will Migrant Caravan Kill Your Child with Disease? So Fox friend Brian Kilmeade asked a former immigration agent, What about diseases? The answer included tuberculosis, leprosy, and smallpox. Smallpox was eradicated 40 years ago. Leprosy fell off the public health problem list at the UN's World Health Organization 17 years ago. Tuberculosis already exists in the U.S. Elsewhere on Fox, even Lou Dobbs had to correct a Fox News contributor who claimed the current U.S. outbreaks of that polio-like disease in kids was brought here by immigrants. Conservative media continues to feed the hatred that grows against brown-skinned immigrants as well as Jews. Fox News is still on the air. The transgendered are on the ballot in Massachusetts this coming Tuesday as the Trump administration repeatedly tries to roll back the rights of trans people. Voters in Massachusetts will decide whether to keep or dump a two-year-old law that protects transgender individuals from discrimination in public places, meaning restaurants and shops primarily. And while their decision is only for Massachusetts, it could have an impact across the country in either direction. The law also allows trans people to use public restrooms and locker rooms that match their gender identities. The group that got this yay or nay vote on the Massachusetts ballot calls itself Keep Massachusetts Safe. And its logo is of a man standing on a toilet to peep at a woman in the next stall. That's the logo. Their video ad shows a man lurking in a stall. And when a woman unbuttons her blouse, the stall opens and we hear a grunt. Seven out of ten Massachusetts voters nevertheless say they will vote yes to keep the anti-discrimination law for transgenders. Those campaigning for keeping trans protections call Tuesday's vote a matter of life or death. They do not exaggerate. Nationwide, violence against trans people continues at the rate of nearly two murders a month. This past week, the ashes of Matthew Shepard were interred at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Shepard was a young man who was murdered 20 years ago, his death becoming a milestone in the fight for gay rights. 2,000 people packed the cathedral to hear the first openly gay bishop of the Episcopal Church head the celebration of Matthew's life. He called Matthew's place in the cathedral a home that is safe from haters. Special counsel Robert Mueller has, as is expected of him, stayed quiet in the early days before the election this coming Tuesday. But even during this quiet period, the special counsel's office, which normally releases nothing, was forced to speak up. Last week, Robert Mueller asked the FBI to investigate an apparent scam in which a woman would make false claims that Mueller was guilty of sexual harassment and misconduct. Over the past few weeks, reporters have been hearing from a woman who said she'd been offered money to make up a story about being harassed by Mueller. 
The reporters investigated and found the woman appeared to be lying about that since they could find no evidence she'd been offered any money. But the reporters did immediately tip off Robert Mueller, and he immediately told the FBI. The focus is on Republican lobbyist and conspiracy theorist Jack Berkman, who also has a radio show and who recently announced he's investigating sex and booze allegations against Mueller. Berkman said he'd have a news conference at high noon today to announce his findings. When reporters asked Berkman for the woman's phone numbers, those numbers matched that of the woman who said she'd been offered money. And those phones are now disconnected. The law firm she claimed she worked for says it has no record of her. Investigators are also looking at Jason Wall, a disgraced hedge fund manager turned pro-Trump conspiracy theorist. He's also the Twitter equivalent of a barfly, tweeting last week, a scandalous story about Mueller is leaking tomorrow, meaning today, the day of Berkman's scheduled news conference. Reporters got Wall's name from Jack Berkman, who told them the real investigators on the case work for a research company called Surefire Intelligence. Reporters checked the phone number they'd been given for Surefire Intelligence, and it turned out to be the number assigned to Jason Wall's mother. Clumsy though it appears, this appears to be a plot to discredit the special counsel looking into the Trump campaign's connections to the Russian government. FBI agents are now digging to uncover this possible hoax or double hoax to see whether Berkman is lying, whether Wall is lying, and whether the woman is lying. This story reminds Salon.com's Bob Seska of a movie he saw. Several movies, actually. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Whenever we talk about journalism movies, most of us always immediately reference the big three. All the President's Men, Broadcast News, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Well, at least they're my big three. I'd also include The Paper, Spotlight, and a lesser-known movie that came and went, but which ought to be on your list, particularly if you haven't seen it yet. The movie is called Shattered Glass, featuring Hayden Christensen in the non-Anakin role of his life, along with the great Chloe Sevigny and Peter Sarsgaard. The movie tells the real-life story of journalist Stephen Glass, a then-young reporter working his way up the ladder at the legendary DC publication The New Republic. In the process, we get an inside look into TNR's newsroom and Glass's too-good-to-be-true reporting about a wild convention of computer hackers and one particular hacker who walked away with a lucrative contract with a tech company called Juked Micronics. Spoiler, it turns out Glass literally invented every word of not just the hacker convention story, but his entire archive at the magazine. Simply put, Glass's stories were all fake news. Not Trump's weaponized definition of fake news, which in reality is usually any news covering the awful truth about how he's wrecking the nation. In this case, Glass's reporting was literally fake. None of it actually happened. Juked Micronics was fake. The hacker convention was fake. All of it. Through Glass's charm and likability, he managed, though, to dupe everyone from his fellow reporters to TNR's fact checkers to his editors, Mike Kelly and Charles Lane. The movie is especially compelling as we watch Christensen's glass scrambling to cover his tracks, a kind of frantic, sweaty, emotionally immature junior-grade Walter White scheme in which glass barely stays one step ahead of Lane's pursuit, complete with bad decision-making, a fake website, fake phone numbers, and fake emails. Thinking back, Shattered Glass is a breathtaking and surprisingly exciting movie that deserves to be in anyone's top five films about the news. 
One of the things I like most about it is that it's not a love letter to journalism. Rather, it shows a newsroom in a thoroughly realistic sense, the good and the truly deplorable aspects of the news. Suffice to say, there's not a happy ending for Glass in the movie or in real life. I immediately thought about Stephen Glass's escapades at TNR when I watched on social media this week as barely pubescent Trumper youth character Jacob Wall tried desperately to sell the world a story about sexual assault charges against Robert Mueller, followed by the spectacular disintegration of his story. You might know Wall from Fox Business Channel. You might also know Wall as a former hedge fund manager who was nabbed for defrauding his investors. I first heard of Wall after clicking on some of Trump's more incendiary tweets. For whatever algorithmic reason, Wall's reply tweets would always show up immediately under Trump's. Actually, it'd either be Wall's replies or the replies of another Trumper youth named Jack Posobiec. I don't have any information that'd tie all of these lost boys together, but there's a similar vibe between Wall and Posobiec, along with other Trumper youths like Charlie Kirk, Candace Owens, and Tommy Lahren. For whatever reason, there's a rather loud, rather well-financed collection of millennials who appear to be enamored with Trump and Trumpism. Perhaps they've been recruited, incubated, and hatched by far-right financiers. I wouldn't rule out the usual suspects in Russia either, considering the target, Robert Mueller. Or perhaps they're just all desperate for the affection of a baby boomer grandpa figure. Indeed, I wouldn't be shocked if we learn there's a vague cultural link between millennials and boomers. Again, I have no evidence of substantive connective tissue between these weirdos. However, in recent months, we've seen them all tweeting the same propaganda. Both Posobiec, Wall, and Kirk have all tweeted numerous variations on this. I was just in a hipster liberal coffee shop, and everyone was talking about how much they love Trump. Not just once or twice, mind you, but on countless occasions with similar wording and spread over months or more. Clearly, this is linked somehow to the walk-away movement, which has Russian psyop written all over it. In case you don't know, walk-away is an obvious social media plot, augmented if not started by Russian troll farms, to convince liberals to leave the Democratic Party and to support Trump. Another confounding series of tweets I've seen from both Wall and Posobiec suggests that if the Republicans quote-unquote win the House, they already control the House, they should, get this, begin impeachment proceedings against Barack Obama. I'm not making that up. Wall, who's the Stephen Glass of this week's nonsense, has apparently been working with another scammer by the name of Jack Berkman, a self-identified lobbyist who apparently hosts a podcast for Newsmax. Berkman evidently hired an investigative firm called Surefire Intelligence to make contact with various women who Berkman and Wall insist were sexually assaulted by Robert Mueller. But as Tuesday wore on this week, the plot rapidly uh, shattered with Wall desperately trying to save face. It turns out allegedly that Berkman hired Wall to make contact with a roster of women and to offer them each $20,000 if they go public claiming Mueller assaulted or harassed them. Wall is surefire intelligence. Actually, Wall and his mom are surefire intelligence. Wall clearly designed the web presence for the outfit and in the process either used celebrity photos or stock photos posing as executives and staff. One of the staffers, Michael Cohen, turned out to be Wall himself since the photo for Cohen was a photoshopped version of a publicly accessible picture of Wall. And the phone number for Surefire automatically transfers to a voicemail box in Wall's mother's name. 
It's juked Micronics all over again, and Jacob Wall is the Dan Badandi of Stephen Glasses. The conspiracy is so ridiculous, even the normal conspiracy-thirsty Jim Hoft, a.k.a. the Gateway Pundit, retracted the story. Other pro-Trump blogs, such as the Chicks on the Right, declared Wall's tall tale to be fake. When you lose the Chicks and you lose Jim Hoft, you're a Trumper in deep trouble. And making matters exceedingly worse for Wall, reporters who were pitched by Wall to run with this fake story, possibly including Ronan Farrow of The New Yorker, passed along the information to Mueller's office, which immediately referred the matter to the FBI. In other words, if things continue to go badly for Wall, he could end up finding himself in federal prison for wire fraud, mail fraud, and whatever other kinds of fraud prosecutors can dig up. And really, it's not all bad for this reason. Watching Wall unravel this week gave me some of my biggest work-related laughs in a long, long time. But it's not all fun and games and schadenfreude. The difference between then, Stephen Glass, and now, Jacob Wall, is that these modern propagandists have a cult audience that inexplicably believes everything it reads. We can and should assume that upwards of 40% of the American voting population will, if they catch word of this, believe all of it. Why? Because it confirms their biases and their Trump-warped narratives about politics. When Glass was finally caught red-handed, he was held accountable by TNR and blacklisted. Jacob Wall, on the other hand, will probably end up being hired by a PAC or another flotilla of Trumpian organizations to carry out more dirty tricks and rat fuckery. And next time, he'll be a little better at it. This is one of the many reasons why Trumpism is so dangerous. Trump and his red hats have created a political movement based entirely on grievances and owning the libs. Nothing more. Nothing redeemable. Nothing on the level. Nothing that reflects American values or any actual ideas beyond bungled trickery. We're laughing at Wall today, but I wouldn't take my eye off of him. Ignoring him won't make him go away. Indeed, Berkman's press conference scheduled for a Holiday Inn in Roslyn, Virginia, is still happening. Unless Trumpism is humiliated out of existence, Wall and his cohorts will continue to multiply like a herd of mogwai on a water slide. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon, and I'll be back with him again for a post-election special next week. The investigation continues also into the dozen-plus ethics complaints filed against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh during and after his confirmation hearings. The Guardian reports that the judge reviewing these complaints is himself controversial for the views that he shares with Kavanaugh, and the judge reviewing these complaints got recommended for that job by Brett Kavanaugh. Please stay tuned. Meanwhile, back at the White House, Don McGahn is no longer White House counsel to the president. CNN says McGahn's exit interview with Trump included McGahn being blamed for the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller and therefore to blame for the cloud that continues to hang over Trump's presidency. McGahn did get compliments from Trump for getting Brett Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court, which was McGahn's only job in his final days on the job. McGahn left even before the background check could be finished on his expected replacement, Pat Cipollone. But then Trump had announced McGahn's resignation months ago, which at the time came as a surprise to Don McGahn. What scares us the most 
Megan Kelly tries to save face, and they got their colon back in the third and final segment up next. I guess I'm not the only one who was surprised to learn that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35. A bald spot pops up, a creeping hairline. What's that going to look like a year from now or two years? You want to keep the hair you have, right, for as long as possible? Well, thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. Here's a pro tip. Don't buy the snake oil at convenience stores. Buy the real deal from medicine and science. 4hims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. 4hims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, sexual wellness, and more with advice and prescription-grade medications, not herbal supplements, at a fraction of the usual cost. No waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and no pharmacy lines. It's all much, much faster, a real time saver. Just answer a few quick questions. The doctor goes over your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website is absolutely amazing. If you order now, my listeners get a one-month trial of hymns for just 5 bucks while supplies last. That includes a consultation. You'll save hundreds of dollars on pharmacy visits. See their website for details. Order right now at 4 slash BBNC. I'll spell it. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash BBNC. 4 slash BBNC. One of the reasons there's been so much gun violence in Chicago is that Indiana, a half hour away, has much, much looser gun laws. Right time of day, you can drive to Indiana, buy a gun or several from a store that's just over the state line and be back all inside of an hour and a half. One of the dads of one of the young people killed in the gun massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland, Florida, is also an artist. And he's designed a billboard comparing the tougher gun laws of Massachusetts and the laxer gun laws of Florida. It says Florida allows unrestricted access to assault weapons and high-capacity ammo and does not require criminal background checks. The billboard, designed by the father of the late Joaquin Oliver, went up today in Boston, where the mayor is worried that his state has actually gotten too soft on guns of late, especially now that eight people have been shot to death in Boston just in the last two weeks. Quoting Mayor Marty Walsh, In some of these gun cases, we need to go tougher. We need to start holding people accountable who have access to these guns. Sorry to report that the news about this planet continues to worsen. This week, the sickening estimate that since 1970, humanity has wiped out 60% of the world's wildlife. Mammals, birds, fish, and reptiles. Since 1970. The World Wildlife Federation says 59 scientists from around the world agree the annihilation of wildlife is now an emergency that threatens the survival of humans. The scientists say wildlife isn't just something that's nice to have. It's part of the ecosystem, each species giving and taking in ways that sustain life for plants, animals, and people. Quoting a top scientist of the World Wildlife Fund, we are sleepwalking toward the edge of a cliff. Says a top German scientist, we are rapidly running out of time. Still, quoting the head of the World Wildlife Fund, we are the first generation to know we are destroying the planet and the last one that can do anything about it. Scientists in Canada say massive glaciers in the Yukon are shrinking much faster than expected and that the landscape there is changing quickly now. Scientists say the warming of the planet is many times 
more noticeable in the great white north than it is in, say, the U.S. But worldwide, a new study says the oceans have been soaking up much more excess heat than scientists had realized. About 60% more heat each year than estimated, they now see. They knew the oceans had warmed over the last 25 years. They had no idea it was by this much until the standard of measurement recently became universal worldwide. Not only is the clock ticking, the clock is running fast. There is cause for hope. There are successful conservation efforts underway. The number of tigers in India is back up by 20%. Thanks to these kinds of efforts, the British coast has sea otters again, and the giant panda population is up in China. An hour south of Seattle, a solar power project looms over what was once an active coal mine. Washington State's building a clean energy hub helmed by a man who worked in a coal-fired power plant for 30 years. In five days from now, Washingtonians will vote on whether to stand alone and to cut carbon emissions in their state by imposing a carbon tax on the businesses that spew it. And Washington wouldn't necessarily stand alone in the long run. Other states and cities are watching and hope to repeat this move in their own jurisdictions. Across the country, more than two dozen candidates have broadcast ads that highlight their views on climate change and the environment. Conservation lobbyists are spending millions of dollars to back those candidates. Climate change and the future of the planet are on the ballot next week for those who vote. The only things we have to fear are the fears themselves, and we have a few. Government corruption is America's biggest fear, according to a university study of a national cross-section of people. Much farther down the list is immigration, with only 18% of us afraid of that. We are more afraid of ghosts and aliens than we used to be by this survey, by about 13%. Our second greatest fear is of pollution. The environment didn't even make the top 10 two years ago. And how are the electric cars coming along? Tesla turned a profit in the third quarter of this year as it delivered 56,000 Model 3s. $312 million profit, in fact, a record profit for Tesla, putting it in the black for the first time in about two years. A way that's new for you to fight the flu. For the first time in 20 years, the FDA has approved a new kind of antiviral flu drug. Sounding a bit like a sneeze, Zofluza is for anyone over age 12 who's less than 48 hours into their symptoms. Zofluza, God bless you. Health officials say we should all have had our flu shots by now, but they are still very much available. And it's not too late. And now the weather. It should be a mild winter across much of the country this year, according to the National Weather Service. The only extremes to be found this winter, at least those expected, are up around Montana, where it will be much drier than usual, and in the northern half of Florida, where it will be much wetter than a normal winter here. A Chinese scientist, meanwhile, is promising the moon. Wu Chunfeng of an aerospace and technology company has a plan to launch an artificial moon into orbit by 2020. It's a satellite that gives off light to the surface of the moon, making it brighter 
to create a dusky glow over an area 10 to 50 miles wide on the Earth. It would be, for that small area, a moon that's about eight times brighter than what we've seen. That worries environmentalists who say it'll upset the creatures of the night. But the scientist behind the project says the glow will be so soft, wildlife routines won't be disrupted. Speaking of circadian rhythms, we turn back the clocks an hour when we go to bed Saturday night and we say goodbye for now to daylight savings time. Standard time returns at 2 a.m. Sunday. In many European countries, probably for the last time, researchers found that it takes days or weeks for people to adjust to these changes, and some of us never do. Some researchers worry about the effects on our health. Britain and the U.S. are hanging in, prepare to fall back. If you're stuck with Halloween candy you don't want, you could always donate it to the troops. The makers of Reese's Peanut Butter Cups had a different idea. They installed a vending machine in New York City that, for one night only, allowed trick-or-treaters stuck with cheap candy to trade it for peanut butter cups. Put in the candy you don't like, out comes the candy you do. In with the bad, out with the goods. You are too late, by the way. They removed the machine this morning. Megan Kelly's exit from NBC got uglier. Lawyers for both Kelly and the network are sparring now publicly over money and the part of her contract that says she cannot respond to NBC's characterization of her as a racist. Kelly's career-ending week began with her asking on air why it isn't okay for white people to wear blackface makeup for Halloween. After an outcry, she stayed home for a day and was told not to return on Wednesday. Other, more lowly paid Today Show anchors now occupy that time slot. NBC hired her away from the Fox News Channel, hoping she'd be a hero to those who'd voted for Trump and those who didn't. ABC had made a similar bet with Roseanne, and now both networks may be regretting their attempts to bridge the gap. Halloween, not surprisingly, was again the top movie in North America for the second week, picking up another $32 million. This sequel to Halloween trails only the original, selling about $175 million in tickets worldwide so far. A Star is Born remains in second place for a fourth straight week. Venom is third. It has been a record-setting month for the movie industry. For all your movie needs, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. A Star is Born remains the top-selling album in the U.S. for the second straight week, featuring vocals by Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, available through my Amazon link for all your music needs. Does having a pot farm next to your house decrease your property value? Yes, say the neighbors of a legal marijuana farm in Colorado, so they're suing the pot farmers. They say the whole area stinks of weed now and that their property values have fallen. If the neighbors can prove that in court, if they can convince the judge this is true, they may have a case. Judges have sided with the neighbors so far. It's scary because it's now in the hands of a federal court in Denver. That could accelerate a collision between the states where weed is legal and a federal government that says it isn't. Let's start with the last line of this story from United Press International. Doctors were eventually able to remove the cricket. The first line is about a doctor at a Vietnamese hospital who had found a live cricket living inside a man's ear canal. The man reportedly went to the hospital complaining of ear pain, I would think so. The doc used an endoscope to get a closer look and quickly posted a video that went viral. 
Black Widow spiders were the concern of a Fresno, California man who decided to use a blowtorch to kill some of them. As usually happens in these cases, he set the house on fire. The man got out safely, called 911. The fire damaged the home's second floor and the attic, and it wasn't his house. The man was house-sitting for his parents. At a college campus in Oregon, a couple of cougars appeared on campus. Not attractive, mature women, a couple of actual cougars, mountain lions. Police made loud noises to try to scare off the animals, but one defiantly remained behind. When police tried to shoot it to protect the public safety, they missed. Students and faculty are now keeping their eyes open for cougars on campus. Meanwhile, on a campus in Scotland, hundreds of students took part in the annual Raisin Monday foam fight. This fight dates back hundreds of years, except for the foam part. In these modern times, students still dress in elaborate costumes, but they gather on the lawn to throw shaving cream at each other. Raisin Weekend is the longer tradition when first-year students thank the upperclassmen for their mentoring. The traditional gift is a bag of raisins. Quoting one student, people ran in and saying, what's this, what are we doing? But nobody really knows, and that's the whole fun of it. Don't say, go ask the twins at a Grand Rapids University Prep Academy in Michigan. Such a command could be confusing since the school currently has... 14 sets of twins in its student roster, 28 twins out of just 441 students total. Six of the 35 seniors are twins. There were three sets of twins on the football team. Friends co-star David Schwimmer denies he was stealing from a restaurant in Blackpool, England. When Blackpool police posted a security video, they asked the public if they could identify the guy. Millions of people did right away. No question, they said. It's Friends co-star David Schwimmer. And the guy in that picture does look exactly like Schwimmer. Not just close. I've seen it. Exactly like David Schwimmer. To answer the charge he had shoplifted in Blackpool... David Schwimmer proved he was actually in New York at the time, posting a video of himself shoplifting a six-pack from a New York grocery store. In China, firefighters this week labored to help a man whose arm had gotten stuck in a noodle machine. And from our Turnabout's Fair Play department in Russia, three hunters returned to their car to find that it had been destroyed by a bear that now occupied the inside. The bear eventually left. The car was totaled. Bear won. Hunter's nothing. And finally, there's a great feeling of relief in Kansas City now that they have their colon back. A giant inflatable replica of a human colon was stolen from the driveway of a home in Missouri. Florida scorners take note. It was in Missouri that people had a giant inflatable replica of a human colon on their driveway. It is owned, however, by the Colon Cancer Coalition and was in transit between the University of Kansas Cancer Center and a 5K fundraiser for breast cancer. The coalition got $11,000 in donations to get a new colon, and now that money, because the original's been found, that money goes to promoting cancer research and awareness. When the stolen colon was found in the front yard of a vacant house, Kansas City Police immediately tweeted in all caps, We have recovered the stolen colon. You can feel the relief. 
I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.